1: Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pod of thunder and rock and roll. And today we're paying tribute to uh, my old friend, Rick Bogner, uh, better known as Big Titan or the uh, the second Razor Ramon, the fake Razor Ramon in WWE, shall we say. Rick passed away suddenly and unexpectedly last month at 49 years old. I uh, grew up with Rick uh, in the business. He was a Calgary guy, good friend of mine, Dodd Callis, Paul Lazenby. Uh, Dr. Luther, Lenny Olsen, Lance Storm. He was one of those guys that was with us right at the beginning, Brett Como. We all came up together, and Rick was the first of our gang to make it in the business in Japan and the first to go to WWE. Uh, So I got Don and Paul on the line to share some of their memories and stories about Rick from his time in Japan to his brief run at ECW and why that didn't work out to his time in WWE, what happened with that, Uh, kind of the trials and tribulations, the ups and downs and the life and times of a really great guy um, who I hadn't thought about a lot in the last few years, but I just wanted to say a few nice things about him because he was a great guy, always made me smile, great disposition, very friendly, and uh, for the time was Perfect. Genetically created to be a pro wrestler, as uh, you'll hear in this upcoming tribute to Titan. Uh, But let's go to Don Callis and Paul Lazenby now. As we remember, uh, Big Titan, Razor Rick Bogner. Hope you enjoy it. Let's just uh, jump right into it then. Kind of some crazy news this week when um, we found out that our old friend Rick Bogner, a.k.a. Big Titan or as Lenny used to call him, Big Tidian, passed away suddenly at 49 years old, which is just so insane. And I think we, we all kind of found out about it together when I when there was a, a tweet or something posted. We've got a group text with the, the two of us, the three of us, and Lance Storm, and uh, Lenny Olsen, Dr. Luther. And I think that's kind of how we all came, found out about the news, am I correct?
2: Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was obviously, you know, you're always blown away when guys before they should and and then obviously when it's someone that you knew and worked with and i probably wasn't as close with him
3: as you two guys may have been but uh it's like a kick in the gut really is the best way i guess i could describe it yeah that this one kind of hit a little bit harder i mean it's an unfortunate thing that if you're in wrestling from a certain era then uh, i don't want to say you get used to hearing about friends dying but it becomes a more regular occurrence than for other people and I've heard of a few guys going that I was going to miss, but Titan was really cool with me um, at a time where he didn't have to be, you know, when I was just a couple of weeks into, into Hart Brothers camp with, with you, Chris and Lance, and he rolled in just to get in some ring time. And, and at the time he was, he was the big name in Calgary. He was the most successful guy of our of crop of, of dudes at the time and had every right to, or every, every you might have every expectation, I should say, to, to think that he was going to big time everybody in the room. And uh, he, he was always really cool with me, man. So uh, so that, this one hit pretty hard.
1: It's one of those things that reminded me of a lot when uh, when Mike lazansky passed away in that I hadn't seen Mike in a long time, and I hadn't seen Rick in a long time either. I did have a little bit of a, of a, uh, of a reunion with him a few years ago, which I'll talk about. But it, much like Mike, Rick was a constant in, in my career and I would imagine in yours yours guys is, as well in that from the moment I showed up in Calgary in, uh, in like June of 1990 until he went to WWE in, in the summer of 96, I think it was. He was on pretty much every show that I was on. We did all the tours together, worked around the world together, uh, hung out a lot in Calgary and on the road. And then you kind of lose touch with guys. And then when you find out kind of out of nowhere that he passed away, Like you said, Paul, it does hit you hard because you realize like, wow, like for a certain part in time, I remember at one point in time, I think I had, said, if I had gotten married, like in 1995, Titan would have been one of the guys that I would have chosen to be like in my wedding party sort of thing. Like he was that close to me at the time because we did spend a lot of time together in those early formative years.
3: Yeah. He he, he, he was always a humble dude and that that I really appreciated that because it's one thing you find in wrestling is you get some guys that never really get beyond the indie level and they've got these inexplicably big egos in there, and they're, they're trying to swagger all over the, the locker room when they're making 50 bucks a match just like you are. Whereas uh, Titan was the opposite. I mean, I, I used to bounce with him at the old Fox and the Frickin' Tavern on Electric Avenue. And uh, he kept that job even when he was doing, like he took off like a rocket in Japan. He could have quit that job at any time. But uh, he didn't consider himself too good to have that. And I always got the sense that, you know, he he wasn't 100% sure that Japan thing was going to take off. He wasn't too full of himself, and he was expecting to end, so he needed a fallback. um, And being smart about it. So, uh, yeah, he just, he always, always had his feet on the ground, man, and and uh, that made him stand out to me. Uh, in a business where there are guys like that, but you also see a lot of guys with runaway egos.
1: Was that the, the hot place in town, Paul? Was it called the uh, the Fox and Furkin? Was that the big one in town?
3: Yeah, it was. Uh, at the time, uh, Elec- 11th Avenue, a.k.a. Electric, Electric Avenue. Avenue it, had, you know, it was just bar after bar after bar in this one-block strip. And um, the Fox and Furkin was probably the most popular place on that strip. But people would go from bar to bar, bouncing around, and, and – there were always massive fist fights in the street at, uh, after hours and, and in the bars during hours. Um, it was a really exciting time to be bouncing there, to be honest. Phil um, LaFon, <laughs> La a.k.a. Dan Crawford, used to come in there every week and uh, get me rip-roaring drunker than anybody in the bar while I was working. So I always loved Slash, hated him for that. But uh, yeah, Titan and I were there pretty much every Friday and Saturday night, uh, usually duking it out shoulder to shoulder because you got, you got at least two fights a night in that place.
1: It's like Roadhouse. I feel that you were you were more of the uh, the Dalton, and he was more of the uh, Sam Elliott character.
3: I would say, yeah. yeah, yeah, he was he was the more laid back. Uh, although I wasn't as cool as Dalton, I, I was probably uh, I was probably more like Terry Funk was in Roadhouse than <laughs> Swayze. Because
1: I remember when I first went down to, to Calgary, like I said, like we we trained there for three months, Lance and I, um, before we started actually working. And I think uh, like right when we got out of school, you know, you're looking for a job. And I remember th- talking to Titan about seeing if he could get me a job at Fox and Furkin. And problem was I lived in Okotoks, which was 30 miles or you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes south of Calgary. And then it took about another hour or forty-five minutes to get downtown, so it was like a ninety-minute commute. And I, I remember I just I went looking for him because he was the only guy that I knew that I thought might be able to help me out in getting a, getting a job. And I remember he said he would try for me, but then I remember I realized it was just too far away to drive that distance, you know, three times a week. Um, but but once again, that's the guy that I went to to try and help me get a job was Titan.
3: Yeah, yeah, he, he was he, he was really approachable, man. Like uh, it never you never thought. Like at the time, I, I was you know five six weeks in I wasn't even completing my training yet, and yet that was one guy that I felt I like I'd go up and talk to. Whereas you know a lot of other guys is like oh they're establishing a the business. I don't know if you know I, I'm just a scrub. I, I don't know if I can go up and and say something to him. Might be not might not be my place. And uh, in his case, it was it was always the opposite. Man, you could you could go up and ask a guy anything. I mean, he, uh, if he could help you, he would. He was he was a nice dude.
1: And the thing is too, for people who don't know, he was legit six six. At about 280, 290, I think he was 21 or 22 years old. He was well, he's 49, so I'm 48. So he's probably 20 or 21 at that time when I was 19 or 20. And just a, a physical specimen, especially for that time frame, when you're talking about the early nineties, that was the prototype of what a wrestler was. And like you mentioned, Paul, he was the 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 biggest name in town because he literally was the biggest guy in town. Who looked like he was genetically created in a factory to be a pro wrestler?
3: Yeah, you really was a great pairing with Mike Awesome because they were both just these giant physical freaks who were way more agile than you'd expect as to be at their size. And um, yeah, he, he had it all. It was it was still the big man era back then, and, and he carried two ninety really really well.
1: When was the first time you met uh, Titan Don?
3: Met him, I think it was probably in Winnipeg because
2: that is 1994 actually the first as you recall in 94 I took over the book for Tony and I fired all the local guys except I think Chi Chi Cruz was the only one I didn't get rid of and I started bringing guys in from Calgary and this was back when my gimmick with Chris who was um Chris you were I think wrestling for war in Japan at that point would be my pitch to you was always Hey, you want to come home and see your family? I'll give you 200 bucks and you can wrestle whoever you want. <laughs> and, uh, and you, 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 if you were available, you're always cool. And you'd come in. And, um, I think, I think that was actually the first time that we brought dragon in as well. Mm-hmm. And then I think you also had a match with Lance. And so my thing was like, let's do you and Lance and then mix dragon in there. And then I needed an opponent. And this was like, right after I'd got back, cause I'd been off for a year, I'd quote unquote retired. And, uh, and I had inserted myself, uh, as Tony's top guy again, it was using all Calgary guys. And I was like, I wanted to work with Titan because to me, uh, the kind of heel I was, I loved the idea of working with a big, strong guy. Uh, and I kind of modeled the stuff I tried to do with him after the Flair Luger stuff, you know? So I remember I brought him in and, uh, we had a lot of local media for it and it was at the Walker theater, now the Bur- Burton Cummings theater in Winnipeg. And, uh, You'll recall, Chris, that the the wrestling ring was on the stage. And, Paul, you wrestled there as well as Death Wolf Fenris, as I recall.
1: Money. Money gimmick.
2: Yeah, tremendous. And uh, i not as good as Kaiser Cosgrove, but that's another story. Um, (laughs) uh, I I went out and cut a promo, and Tony Mariani, who may have been the best microphone stand guy that I, I ever worked with, asked me, you know, well, you know, I was putting myself over. I was in this beautiful suit and tie, I have my belt, you know, says the champion, and I'm talking. And he's like, Well, what about this guy, Titan? And I start burying him. He's a circus freak, you know, all this stuff. I'm going on and on. And then, of course, Titan in his trunks only and jack to hell, uh, was standing right behind me. And so I did the old classic thing where I turn and I'm like nose to nipple with this giant because he was like six five, six, six, he yeah. had lifts in his boots. And I'm like, okay, take it easy, big man, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't want any trouble. I'm out here in my suit. Just take it easy. You'll get your chance. And then, of course, as soon as he turned his back, I nailed him with the belt. And it was like, boom, boom, boom. I started chopping him, you know, flare style. And he's no selling. And I'm chicken shitting into the corner. And basically, I had him tear the suit from my body uh, down to my super string bikini Calvin Klein underwear. And, uh, and then... Uh, he shot me in and press slammed me and almost killed me, of course. And, uh, and then he went to cover me and Chi Chi Cruz came in and did the one, two, three. And it was like, not a title change, but it was like setting the table. I just remember it being really funny. Like I was super excited to work with him because I love the idea of having a big guy to be a heel with. And I came up with a spot guys where I said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I'm like, when I hit you with the, with the belt, I said, uh, you know, you roll out to the floor. I said I will do a crossbody off of the post to the floor on you. You catch me and turn it into a power slam on the floor, and like just all in one motion. And which was, if you guys know me well enough to know that I would not normally volunteer to take that kind of a bump or any kind uh, of bump, and, yeah. or, or any kind of bump. Uh, so <laughs> so he looks at me and he goes, "I don't feel comfortable with that. I don't. I don't think it's. You know, I, I'm very worried about that bump. I'm like." what are you worried about? You just have to give me the bump. (laughs) Uh, but, uh, but he refused to do it. And probably for the best, because, uh, I love Rick, but like he was a little rough around the edges sometimes and and pretty jacked up. So I was like, yeah, if he screws this up, he's going to put me in the hospital. So, so we never ended up doing it. And, uh, and that was my first kind of interaction with Rick. I
1: remember that too. I remember him tearing the, uh, tearing the the, the suit off of you because it's a total old-school flare uh, angle, right?
2: Yeah, totally, totally.
0: Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed.
1: It's interesting, too, because I know, you know, Don, you, you remember more from the Calgary or the Winnipeg side of things. And maybe in, in WWE, when, I'm sure we'll talk about that when he, when you guys both went there. But Paul and I would know him more from the Calgary side of things. And you mentioned something interesting earlier, Paul, is that you said out of our crop of guys, and there was a good little group of guys in Calgary, some of which we still hang out with today. And once again, Dr. Luther, you, me, Lance, uh, Como. Rick was the first guy to ever make it, quote-unquote, in Calgary and out of Calgary, out of out of our gang.
3: Yeah, I mean, he uh, he really did take off fast. You know, it, it, people don't understand how successful he was at a young age. I mean, he's obviously, he's got the, uh, the fake Razor Ramon thing that most people remember him for because that was the biggest stage in North America that he, he competed on but, or um, performed on. But in Japan, man, he was like 21 years old, 22 years old, and he was already a huge star. And uh, when you look at the level of raw talent, the diamonds and the rough that were in our group, I mean, you, Lance, uh, Como you, know, you went through the list already. Lazansky was in that group. And all guys who would eventually distinguish themselves. but Rick was the first. You know, he, he got out of the blocks first, and he was the first in Japan, first to WWE.
1: Yeah, and I remember. Uh, and here's the name that you probably haven't heard for a while, or might not want to hear. Uh, Paul was, was the name of Fred Jung. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> did you ever hear about Fred Jung, Don?
3: Uh, I heard
2: some not so good stories. Yes,
1: exactly. But here's one of those things that you hear about um, quite a bit, even to this day. Where there'll be a bunch of small-time promoters all arguing over who gets to use who, and they're only running one show a month or one show every two months. So we we had trained with Ed Langley, the illustrious Ed Langley, and and Paul had trained with him as well. Ipso facto it was the Hart Brothers wrestling camp with no Hart brothers in it, and <laughs> Fred Jung kind of was was. I'll tell you what, I don't know how old he was at the time, probably not much older than than me, but he was a real, he was a real snake oil salesman and he always wore the suits and ties and he had the the delusions of grandeur of, you know, being able to send guys around and, and book guys and do things with guys. Like he had lots of power. The one thing he did have was a guy called Ricky Fuji who was in Calgary for a short time towards the end of stampede wrestling and Ricky Fuji, uh, was one of the, I guess, corner posts of uh, of FMW, and I think in Calgary he was called Morimura, Masanori Morimura, or something like that. So he um, did have a connection to FMW, and as much as he bullshitted us all the time, he actually did get Rick to go there, and once Rick went, suddenly all of us were like, oh my gosh, like it actually worked. He actually can get us booked. And then we all kind of fell under his spell for, for a while. Um, is that how you recall it, Paul?
3: Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I actually remember even signing a contract Gosh. with, uh, I think he called it World Combat Sports or something, his, his pseudo company. But I don't even know if it really existed. Frontier
1: Martial Arts World Combat Sports. That's right, WCS.
3: Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he, he, he would make promise after promise after promise to the point that one time I got a, a phone call from him saying, Pack your bags, you're leaving for Japan on Wednesday. And then complete radio silence for like a week and a half after that. You know, so it's, uh, I mean, I'm calling him up. Like I'm, I'm expecting, I'm ready to go. My bags are actually packed like a mark. I'm sitting by the phone and, you know, he just froze me out. And you would play games like that all the time. I think he just, I mean, he, uh, he fancied himself a power broker and he liked, like trying to pull people's strings. And for a while, like you said, because, you know, and, and this was 100% because of Rick's star power. Rick basically got himself booked. I just made the introduction uh, but um, you know he uh, he had he was swinging the heavy hammer for a very brief time in in Calgary, uh, which made it even sweeter. I know this is supposed to be about Rick, but I have to tell this story. Sweeter when Fred was running a show that he was wrestling on in Vulcan, and uh, you were on it, Chris. Yeah. And at the time, because of the fashion of the day, you you had taken to wearing really distressed jeans with big holes in them and uh, neon paint <laughs> patterns all over it. So Fred walks in. <laughs> with this, this cheap paint that he had gotten from some hobby store and a pair of jeans and a razor blade. And he throws them at you, and he goes, make my jeans look like yours, and walks out. And so you, I thought you were going to punch him in the head, but then he cooled off. And you did uh, distress his jeans and, and put holes in them and stuff right over his crotch and his butthole <laughs> and proceeded to proceeded to smear brown paint around the back of it so it looked like he soiled sort of himself. <laughs>
1: See, this is why I love doing these shows. And, and Don, you mentioned earlier, you didn't know how long we could talk, but it brings up all these stupid stories because I had those jeans uh, painted that way because Nelson, the Nelson brothers who were very popular at the time, always had these cool jeans with holes in them and paint on them. So I went to a clothing store and bought like jeans paint. I forgot that he told me, make my jeans look like yours. I was like, all right, motherfucker, no problem. <laughs> 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 well because he like i said he he actually wrestled too he was called the chaos kid and he would wrestle these shows of course he was the champion putting himself over he was about five foot six you know 112 pounds whatever but because like you said he had this connection with rick that we all kind of listened to him and he would then manipulate all of us against each other Because I never did sign that contract. And I remember Lenny wouldn't talk to me for months. And I think it was you that told me that Fred had said I was bearing Lenny or something along the lines. Remember, he was trying to turn each other against us?
3: Yeah, yeah. He's just basically a horrible person. And and, uh, in fact, I eventually did get an opportunity to go to FMW. Dr. Luther was looking for a, a tag team partner. They told him to find one. And, uh, I think he'd asked one or two other guys that weren't available. And and then he came to me and he said, dude, you want to do this? And of course I had two dreams when I got into wrestling, make it to WWE or WCW and wrestle in Japan. And so of course I said, yeah, I'm in and let me tell, okay, I want you as my tag team partner. And then Fred vetoed it because I had gotten pissed off at him for lying about the previous Japan trip where he wouldn't, he didn't even have the balls to tell me I wasn't going and it was all a fabrication. So uh, that that ended up going to Steve Gillespie instead.
1: Well, you know who else auditioned for that role was me. I took pictures with Lenny for that role too. How many people was Lenny auditioning for that part?
3: <laughs> yeah, we should have a talk with Dr. Luther about this. Maybe he was playing some games himself, bastard.
1: Did you audition for that too, Don? It seems like everyone, other one of his friends were.
3: Sadly, no. And
2: uh, my my only kind of like, I'm going to do something different to try to get booked somewhere was uh, the Desperado Don Banderas, uh, which was a gimmick that I created for myself for CMLL. But uh, as is often the case with things in my career, my timing sucked because uh, I came up with the idea right after the peso crash. So (laughs) no Mexico for me
1: awesome just to finish up with the fred jung thing i remember the same as you paul where he'd be like okay you, you have a fedex coming it's gonna be there at like one o'clock with your visa in it and just sitting there literally by the door waiting for it to come we didn't know uh you know i remember even one time he, he took me and lenny and somebody else we were gonna go to we had shows booked in Tijuana. And all we had to do is drive to Vancouver to pick up our work visas, then drive down to California and do our shows. Of course, we drove from Calgary to Vancouver. There were no work visas because there was no connection. Hung out in Vancouver for a few days and drove back. That's so psycho this guy was.
3: I'm honestly surprised somebody hasn't taken him out. I mean, he, he, we can't be the only guys he's burned over the years. And, uh, just, yeah. Just a contemptible individual. It's funny, Lance is usually very careful about you know, really – talking trash about somebody in public, but if you bring Fred's name up, he'll launch into it right away.
1: Yeah. Yeah. because well, once again, back in those days, he kind of took advantage of us, took advantage of all of us. But one thing that, that, that he did not take advantage of is, is Rick did go to, to, to FMW. And like you said, he debuted there. Uh, I just got a little bit of a uh, Wikipedia here. November 20th, 1991. And then in uh, January fifteenth, one day before his twenty-second birthday, nineteen ninety-two, they put him over Onita to become the 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 World Martial Arts Heavyweight Championship, which at the time FMW was a very big company. So we're going to talk about Rick and, and how he was kind of clued out in some ways, but you're talking about a guy that had a huge push when he was 21 years old. And as we know, when you go through the pantheon of, of the business, it's never good to get that big of a push at such a young age. What do you think about that, Don?
2: Yeah, it's really tough because I think that, uh, you don't end up learning a lot of the lessons along the way. And I think that for some of our friends who got big pushes early on, it becomes difficult because you now compare everything that happens to that. And you think that that level of success is actually the norm. That's what's normal. And I've had this discussion with with our boy, Dr. Luther. It's like, man, like you accomplish more in the business than 99% of people that are in the business or have been in the business. It's just a lot of your success was very early. And so for me, who, you know, I I would say I paid a few dues in in Canada and, and work in Northern Tours and stuff, like there was more of a progression because the traditional way, as you say, would be, you know, you pay your dues, you grind, you get a little bit, you get a little bit, and then you hit. It's like, I think it's really hard. It's almost like being a child actor. It's like, you know, if you're Macaulay Culkin, like, hey, great, you got a huge career at age seven. But then, like, how do you follow that
3: up? And I think that's, that's maybe a good analogy for some of those guys and what they had to deal with.
2: It's
1: a great analogy. It
3: reminds me of a TV series that I was looking on not too long ago, and there was a, a last-second emergency recast. And the actor they brought in was working on their very first show. You know, this was their big opportunity. And it wasn't more than a day or two before they were really kind of pushing back against a lot of the direction and saying, well, this is what I think. And I thought, what the hell are you doing? And then I realized, oh, they they think I got this opportunity thrown in my lap right out of the gate. That means I'm awesome and I don't have to learn and I don't have to, you know, I, I've got it all already. I've got all the pieces in place already so nobody can tell me anything. And I'm not saying Rick was was that bad, but I think he probably suffered a bit with regards to his, his in-ring skills, maybe not evolving the way they should have, because he got this yes. very loud, emphatic message that dude, you're already a star. You've already got everything you need. And maybe that, you know, maybe you got a little bit complacent as far as developing his, his in-ring.
1: Well, I think that that's a, that's a great point, Paul, because like, once again, it's hard to explain here in 2019, just how huge at Sushi Onita was in the early '90s. Like you're talking more popular than Inoki and Baba, and I'm not kidding because I was there. That guy was able to fill stadiums. And you want to talk about a five star match? The guy probably never even never even had a point five star match. This is when they the days of the exploding barbed wire, super hell death match. But what Onita would do is he had such charisma, is that when the match was done, he would win with his shitty Super f- Thunder Power Bomb, which was a terrible power bomb, and he would cry. And he would pour water over his head, and they would play Wild Thing by Joan Jett, the Joan Jett version. And people would storm the ring, and he would sit there. It would be like the old days of Hogan after the matches when he would pose for 20 minutes. And that was more exciting than the match itself and more valuable. So for them to put Titan, who I don't know when Rick started, but probably not too much quicker than than, than I did, you know, in his second or third year of the business at 21 years old over in Onida, that'd be like a 21-year-old beating Inoki when Inoki was in his early 40s. So it was a huge thing. And I think, like you said, Paul, you're not going to concentrate on your weaknesses because why should I? I'm the world champion. They just put me over one of the top guys, not just in the country, but in the world. So I think that would have probably thrown off his perception for the rest of his career.
3: Yeah, how do you keep your head on straight when you, I mean, like Don talked about it, and- and I, I, was, I was very, very slow in my career progression. You know, I, I paid a lot of dues before I got any, to making any kind of significant money in the film industry. But that makes me very grounded because I have a frame of reference. Right. And uh, Rick had none. You, know, you take somebody from step A to step X or Y or Z, then you really have no frame of reference or what it's like in the middle. And, and people usually end up having to take a step back in their career, and then it's unfamiliar territory for a guy like that
1: Did you see? Uh, I always thought that Rick had really great charisma too, for that character. He had he had great early '90s wrestling charisma, like a Sting or a, an Ultimate Warrior type of thing. Did you did you find that, Natch?
2: Yeah, he really did. I mean, he, he had a, he's a good-looking guy. He had a he had an excellent look. And, uh, you know, he wasn't a guy where, you know, our good friend Lance Storm. when I would work with Lance, I would have to, or I would, I would, I would always get in his ear and go, come on, man, like you got to fire up on your comeback, like, you know, show me some fire look excited when you're walking in the ring. And with Rick, you never had to tell him that now the actual wrestling, once you were in the ring with him was the opposite of working with Lance. (laughs) <laughs> but he always had the, the fire, and he always had the charisma for sure. And he's a likable guy, that was, and, and that yes. that translated into what he did you know and uh when he was in front of a crowd
1: i think that's a great point he was a very likable guy and i don't think he had the killer instinct that you need to really make it now once again in fmw especially with the gladiator mike awesome who was a similarly sized guy maybe a few inches shorter but probably 20 pounds heavier those guys would just go and beat the shit out of everybody And the japanese were terrified of them they didn't have to work on you know tackle drop down you know clothesline they were just brawling and that's how it was working so that aspect of of the basics of the business rick probably didn't have a lot of and another thing was rick was obsessed with being you know a high flyer leapfrogs and drop kicks and i remember he was so excited because he did a frankenstein or off the top rope once and even then in those days i remember thinking like it might have even been lasansky that was saying like why are you doing this Like you're six foot six, you know, three hundred pounds or whatever. There's no need for it, and Rick would always be insulted by that. Like, no, I, I I can do these things. I'm, I'm I'm agile. I'm sure if he was around today in the Brian Cage, Keith Lee era, maybe that'd be more beneficial. But in the Hulk Hogan, you know, uh, Lex Luger era, being able to fly at six foot six, two hundred eighty pounds was not something that was expected or wanted.
3: And uh, also, yeah, I know, think it's almost like your career longevity. Exactly. I, I remember going through a wrestling or he was showing me a wrestling magazine that, that he was featured in, some shots in one of his matches, and it showed him doing a, a tope over the right. top rope to the, to the floor. Yeah. And I said, dude, why are you doing that? Like, your partner, Mike Austin, awesome does that. He, it's his thing, and he's assuming all the risk. You doing it is kind of redundant, and you're just taking that unnecessary risk where when a guy your size crashes and burns, it's really ugly. Enough. No, no, no. I got to do it. I can do it. I got to do it. And it just, you couldn't get past that. Like I'm capable of this. So I have to do it.
1: What were you going to say, Don?
3: Well, you know, the thing is too, it's like,
2: it, it really is like, it's, it's the reverse, right? It's again, it's like he guys that are in the put and it's not on them. It's like they're put in the position based on how they're, how they're booked or how they work. It, it's like, you're learning things. You're learning how to run before you know how to walk. So I think it's really hard when a guy like Rick who, you know, wanted to do that stuff, got over doing that stuff. Same thing with Mike Austin when he was at ECW with me. It's like, they know how to do all of that stuff. They know how to go hundred miles an hour. You know, they know how to, how to jump the car over 40 trucks, but they don't know how to parallel park. So it's like, you don't know how to work to crowds. You don't know. So like for Rick to go to WWF at the time and a, everyone there at that time is going to think you're a mark for trying to do that stuff. Cause that was the mindset, but B when you don't have a background in the other stuff and you've got to learn on the job in front of, you know, a hundred million people every week on, on, on their TV, that's really, really a hard thing to do. And I think he suffered a bit with that. I,
1: I agree with you on that. I'll tell you something else too. I know this is, this is something that really, it really it took a lot out of Rick and, and you'll know this, uh, Don. Uh, so I was lucky to work with, it's, it's hard to envision this now because JBL, John Bradshaw, uh, Layfield, jo- John Hawk at the time. Now he's a philanthropist. He's, he's actually a really nice guy, but in the early nineties, he was a terror. And he was, he was, a, he was a son of a bitch. He'll be the first to tell you. And most importantly, he was a bully. I was lucky because I was in Japan working WR where they brought, uh, Bradshaw in, uh, as a heel, so we did three or four tours together and there was no real bullying cause we were the only foreigners on the show and you kind of hang out in the back of the bus and you have a good time and you, you know, you, 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 you hang out. And I knew when Rick was, he got booked with with Otto Vance in CWA in Germany and Austria. I was like, Oh, that's cool. Bradshaw's going to be there. You'll have a good time. He's a great guy. Basically when Rick came back, said that Bradshaw was the worst and, and made his life a living hell and really messed with his confidence because I think Bradshaw probably saw a guy like Rick once again, who was probably very immature to the real workings of the business because he got such a push right out of the gate. And also, let's don't forget, in Calgary, he always had a push because he was the biggest guy. I remember he was – he was, he was uh, they had an angle with him in Calgary where he got kicked out of the company and then he came back as Mega Mask, the old uh, Midnight Rider, Dusty Rhodes thing. And so he was always like the top guy you know, within a year or two of the business and then, you know, goes to Japan and then goes to Germany where you have these long-term vets like Fit Finley and Dave Taylor and, and John Bradshaw. And I think it really crushed his confidence because I know they really ran, especially Bradshaw, really ran him through the ringer when he was over there.
3: Well, it's
2: it's you know, that's unfortunate. I remember hearing a little bit about that. And then I also remember because I I traveled with Bradshaw a couple of times or, or was around him. And I remember him talking about Titan and sort of burying him from his time in uh, CWA right. and whatever. And it's like, I don't know how much like, and back then, yeah, John was what he was. And, um, it's interesting. Cause I mean, with me, he was always fine. Although after I left, I would hear stuff he had said behind my back, but never did and did or said anything to me directly which is sort of the classic bullying stuff. Right. And, uh, but maybe he did it with with Rick and, you know, you know, bad news who helped Rick a lot would have told him that he should have just, he should have just stood up to him and whether he did or not, I don't know, but there's certainly a lot of stories going back, whether it's Steve Blackman or, or, or other guys that were in WWF who did stand up, uh, when John would say something to them and, and, you know, in, in every story I ever heard Joey Styles another famous yeah. one did always back them off so don't know why Rick didn't do that but I think it's that that seed that got planted with Otto clearly did not help Rick when he went right. to Vince when was uh, there. with a challenging gimmick and then yeah Bradshaw is there and and you know kind of one of the locker room leaders quote-unquote so
1: I know um when he finished with catch, and I'd forgotten a little bit about this, I brought him into WR because I was kind of doing the Johnny Ace thing at the time and booking the foreigners. And who do you book when you are in Japan? Well, you book all your friends. I got Como over there, I got Lance over there, I got Lenny over there. And then kind of in his big return to Japan, which was a kind of a big deal at the time, was bringing Rick Titan over to WAR, Big Titan as they called him in Japan, which was kind of like he jumped from FMW to, to war because he had been gone from Japan for a while. And it was a huge deal. Once again, uh, I told the story a few weeks ago on the podcast, but it just it's just one of those other examples of when you're a big guy, don't leave your feet voluntarily because I remember the first big match was Tenru versus versus uh, versus Titan. They put him in the main event at Corican, which at the time a Corican show was a big show. And the very beginning, you guys know how those Japanese are the, the, the two big guys, they hit the ropes and they tackle each other in the middle and they stand there, no selling. And there's a big, huge, oh, it's Big Titan versus Tenru. It's a dream match. They do it again. And for some reason, Rick jumped off his feet and did a flying elbow, which would have looked great had Tenru taken a bump. But he didn't. He just stood there and Rick bounced off him. Rick took the bump. Tenru just looked at him. And you know the mystique was gone. It was like okay, well, t- t- Titan just took himself off his feet and didn't even move Tenru. It just proves that we we always know that that Tenru is stronger than Titan because the Japanese fans love Tenru. Had Rick not done that, it might have been a different story. But once again, he always thought that he if he did the flying moves, it would help him more. And not understanding his audience, and not understanding the reputation and the place that he had in Japan as a legit top guy heavyweight.
3: Yeah, I, I can't disagree with that. So it, It's something that, I don't know how you did it. Uh, you you seem to, uh, whenever you did something that was, you were advised against doing in Japan, it ended up being the right thing. Uh, I think you mentioned at one point being told not to play the crowd so much and just let them react on their own and, and you engaged them more and it worked. Whereas Rick seemed to unfortunately have the opposite of that instinct to work. When he decided to do something that, uh, that maybe was he considered to be outside the box, it wasn't really the best thing for him.
1: I remember the, the finish of that match was uh, Tenro was going through a phase where he was punching people in the face for a finish, which it's a great finish. I mean, it's a finish everyone can understand. But Tenra always made sure that, you know, <laughs> the punch was not worked shall we say and the picture in the magazine of, of tender beating titan with the punch to the face looked like the cover of pantera's album Vul- vulgar display of power where you just see the, <laughs> the the jaws like three inches to the right of the face sort of thing don did you ever hear of anything of uh oh, i was gonna say too that i forgot this as well is that titan did do fairly good in, in war i think he did 10 tours there and he actually was one of our uh uh Teammates on the Fuyuki Goon, which was the evil heel stable made up of Fuyuki, uh, Jato and Gato, who everyone knows myself. Um, because it was Jado and Gato and I was Lionheart, they made me Lion Doe. And when they brought Titan in, they changed his name to Taito, which is uh, some sort of big Taito with some sort of uh I think some sort of Japanese martial arts. So he did fairly good in war, but once again it was into a group setting where he'd be in a tag team with us where we could emphasize his strengths and kind of Uh, mask some of those uh, weaker qualities that he had. Do you want a beautiful lawn?
0: Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com. T R U G R E E N dot com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people, guaranteed.
2: Don,
1: did you ever hear anything about Rick when he went to ECW?
2: No, uh, not really at all. And uh, and I remember thinking that you know, it, isn't it interesting that you know Mike Awesome came in and became ECW World Heavyweight Champion, and uh, which I. I guess Paul had done everything and he was trying to do something different. But I remember, God bless Mike Austin, he's a great guy and rest in peace of course. But I remember just thinking like, I don't know that this is the evolution that Paul should be going for. Cause the thing about Mike and a little bit about Rick, it's like, well, if you're bringing this guy in and you want him to be himself, then he has to powerbomb people off the top rope uh, every night and, and do that and it's like we had a locker room that was beat to shit and it's like well how many guys are going to take this bump and they ended up bringing in um, Tanaka to wrestle him and I'm just, I'm watching this and even by ECW standards I'm going like I don't see this as sustainable so um, it would have been great if they brought Rick in I think I think Mike at the time Paul probably saw as someone who was much more of a differentiator um, but as we know, that that experiment did not last long, and I think ultimately was ill advised.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, you know, I, I know. I was there when they uh, because Paul Paul was bringing bringing in a bunch of guys. He brought in Biff Wellington one weekend. He brought in Jason Helton one weekend. He was just looking for this Calgary connection, yeah, right? And he brought in Rick. And uh, I'm just looking at it here. It was one weekend. He he won the first match against the Job guy, and the next night he lost to Sabu. Sorry, he beat, he won the first match and then lost the second match. said, that was it. So I know, and you would know Paulie probably even better than me, Don, because Paul had a lot of plans for Titan. He was really hot on Titan. And you know Paulie was when, like, it took him a year to book me, um, like a year of me calling him and, and yeah. humming and hawing. And then finally, like, oh, yeah, I want to do something. I want to do something and finally made the book. With Rick, it was a very short period of time. Maybe I showed him a tape or maybe he saw a tape. And he booked him fairly quickly, but only gave him one weekend's tryout to show what he can do. And I'm like, how how bad must the match have been against Sabu to be in and out that quickly where you never got brought back when Paul had plans for you? He must have not seen anything in Rick. Because I remember the match being not great, but you're, you know, ECW was not known for having a lot of great matches besides the top two or three anyways.
3: Yeah. Uh, I, I was just thinking, it, it re- really is too bad that that connection didn't end up being uh, solidified better between Heyman and Rick, because I think Rick could have really used. I, I think one of one of the big problems with his career is he, re- he really needed kind of a guiding influence. Like uh, the more I hear uh, from Paul Ellering and from Road Warrior Animal talking about their time uh, together, it, it's apparent that you know that was a shoot. Is that Paul was a legitimate guiding influence in their career, and he really took care of of hawking animals. And uh, they might not have ascended in the business as high as they did uh, if they weren't with Paul, because they were a couple of crazy meatheads and, and gym rats and, and barbarians. And they had this guy steering them uh, in the right direction in their career. And I think Rick uh, in a different way, he was kind of that, that raw talent, but he, he I think he really needed somebody to guide him. And, and Heyman would have been a good guy for that if, if they had a long time together. And I think later
2: on in life uh, and probably past where, he was going to do a lot in the business because this would have been early two thousands. He became pretty close with Bad News Allen, and uh, and and of course, and had like worked out with Bad News, done stuff uh, on indie shows with News. So I think that it's it's a shame in a way that if News could have done for Rick <laughs> what he did for <laughs> Mike Lazansky, pardon me, News probably could have got Rick into New Japan as he did Mike, and Rick was certainly a much bigger talent at the time uh, than Mike and things could have been totally different but they clearly didn't find one another until much much later in life which is sad
1: yeah and like I said this is not a but you know how how well, I mean how I am but but at the time I wasn't as good as like you look at Fuyuki, the Fuyuki guy, I learned a lot from Fuyuki since passed away and and so did Jado and Gato who are now very successful especially Gato in new Japan being the booker. But um when Rick was with us he was really good because we knew how, how to how to use him, which I think he enjoyed because he got the confidence that he didn't have to do everything by himself and the things he did do were all orchestrated to make him look like a killer. And I think that your point is that when he had some people above him who had some ideas, he could look really, really good, you know? So when you're talking about the pantheon of his career and and of course we know him from his whole career, most people know him just as the, as the fake Razor Ramon. So I remember how this all transpired and and I don't know if you were around Paul or, or, or Don, but he was really close with Brett. He was spending a lot of time with Brett and Brett of course had a lot of power. In WWE at the time as the champion or, or, or as a top guy, whichever one it was. And, you know, once again, you see Rick Titan, it's it's a no-brainer. For whatever reason, they had this idea of when Hall and Nash left to replace them, uh as their characters with, with new with new guys. And I remember when Rick told me about it, because he was obviously kind of not super thrilled about it, but and this is a shoot. I thought it was a great idea. I didn't know what I was thinking, but I was like, if you look at Batman, okay, Adam West has played Batman. Michael Keaton has played Batman. George Clooney's played Batman, Val Kilmer. Sean Connery's been James Bond, Roger Moore, you know, Daniel Craig. It's not something that doesn't happen every day in Hollywood. So I thought, well, it could probably work in wrestling as well. But obviously there's so much of of the personal characters in those guys that, it wasn't the same. But what did you think when you first heard about that concept, uh, Don?
3: I, I
2: was like you. I loved it. And I'm like, wow, what a great way to go in. And boy, he's lucky he's got the razor one because that's going to be a lot more fun to yeah. do. I guess in a, and as someone who was saddled with a horrific gimmick when I Good went point. there, I know how hard it is to get out from under that. But um, and, and I had some limited success with getting out from under it. But, but I was always thinking to Booker, and, and so I was probably a little more, had a little more foresight about, okay, this is a dead end thing. I can figure something out. I think Rick just kind of, maybe didn't
3: understand that I got to position myself with this for whatever the next thing is. How about you, Paul? Yeah, I, I, I agree with Don. And, and I think the problem with Rick is uh, in that gimmick is that, yeah, of course he, he didn't like it. And I, I would imagine Glenn Jacobs didn't particularly enjoy having to, having to be the one that wasn't working, but, Know far better than I do. Uh, if you're handed a crappy gimmick and you can't get out from underneath it right now, then then you charge full bore into it and you you commit 100%. You know it's the same with acting. You know if I if I hate this screenplay, but I don't have the the stroke to change my lines, I'm gonna get the most out of them. I'm gonna fully commit to this character and get the most out of this that I can. And I think with Rick, I mean, Rick was hilarious. He had a great Hawk impression. He had a great had Great impression. impressions. He cracked the boys up in the locker room with it when he was having fun. But when he was out there, I always got the sense he wasn't having fun. And that was detracting from his performance as opposed to him fully committing and making it as cartoonish as possible and at least being entertaining.
1: I will say this. I know because I was hanging out with him because that's right before I started. Actually, if you look at, uh, I'm just once again looking at the Wikipedia. He started in September of '96. I started in WCW at the end of August in 96. So we kind of both went our separate ways at the same time. And I remember um, he really spent a lot of time on this. He, he, like, as you mentioned, he was a great impressionist. He used to do great impressions of, of a lot of guys. I remember he always did a great impression of Shawn Michaels talking about being balls deep in Sonny. Just how I don't know why, why he was talking about that, but I just remember I can't even do a Sean Muggs, but balls deep and sunny or whatever. And he did a great impression of Mr. Pogo. Mr. Pogo was a Japanese wrestler who was just like just the worst, like total deathmatch wrestler. But when they brought Rey Mysterio in to WAR, Mr. Pogo was there. And Rick did a great imitation to where he was like, uh, Hey, what's that guy over there with the mask? Uh, Oh, that's Rey Mysterio. He's a a luchador. He's a wrestler. Really? He looks like a little queer. And (laughs) (laughs) I just remember Rick doing that and just like laughing so hard. (laughs) Um, Then just being such a great. So but he spent a lot of time honing down this Razor Ramon. And if you watch it, I've been watching some of the tapes over the last few days since he passed away. Take out the concept that it's a terrible gimmick. Take out the concept that whatever you want to say. As an impression, he did a great job. He did a great job with the mannerisms, the movement, the way that that Scott Hall walked in the ring. So he really did put a lot into it. And I think once he got to WWE and saw just how it went, so bad so fast that's probably where he lost the, the confidence because as you know when you lose your confidence as as a performer that's when you don't want to be there but when you got nowhere to go you got to try and do the best you can but he went into it with the best of intentions and put a lot of uh a lot of effort into that
3: yeah it, it just uh it really sucks because cause knowing rick as well as i i did I could see there was another level that he wasn't hitting. And probably through no fault of his own. You know, he just, like you said, if your heart's not in it, it's hard to, to 100% commit. But, you know, I'd seen him do Razor, and it was even better than what you would ever, you saw him do on television. Uh, it just, it always seemed to me like there there was just a little bit missing from the Razor impression anytime I saw it on WWE. And, uh, you know, it, it, his frustration would, would explain that.
1: I remember, I, don't, I just have to say this. I remember we were trying to figure out what they were going to call, uh, what they're gonna call Razor and Scott Hall when they got to WCW, and we're like, well, they can't call him Razor Ramon and Diesel, and we're just throwing on names. And he's like, they're probably gonna call him like you know, kind of a knockoff, like Shave, Phil fill, and Turbo. And we created this whole character of Shave, Phil fill, that would be Razor Ramon, but he couldn't use the name. Phil. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that man. That's
3: this tremendous. It,
0: yeah. Do you want a beautiful lawn?
1: I know, too, when, when when the gimmick started going bad that uh, that Rick spent a lot of time at Brett's place and he was really trying to come up with different characters and different uh, ideas. And, of course, I think the the the, the jury was already out on that hey, Rick, I think he had some heat for the reasons we, we spoke about earlier, about just kind of being a little bit immature, being a little bit clued out to how the, how the rest of the world really worked. And also, too, probably his work wasn't up to stuff. Because if you look... At his counterpart, of course, was Glenn Jacobs. They took him out of the Diesel character, and then he became one of the greatest gimmicks and one of the greatest performers in WWE history is Kane. I don't know why they never gave Rick another shot. Any any theories, basically what we discussed?
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, once you're burned to a certain extent, it, it's hard to get out from underneath it. You you know much better than I do how political the wrestling world can be. And, and while Rick was a likable guy, um, I, I think there might have been an element, too, where he did... Looked like a star. I mean, he was six foot six. He was well built. He was a good looking dude. So maybe there were some upper tier talent who would jump on any time that, you know, Rick, Rick uh, stepped on his own genitalia, so to speak. And they would blow that up as much as possible to try to bury him and make sure that he wasn't a threat to them. That, that, that is a possibility. But yeah, I, I just think, unfortunately, he could be his own worst enemy at times just by not, like you said, not understanding the lay of the land. And uh, Dr. Luther had a great example where. He and, and Titan were in a taxi, and there was a, they, they got lost for some reason in, in a taxi, and they were late for the, the bus. And, you know, in Japan— I remember. Uh, six o'clock. Meeting, I was there. Yeah, six o'clock, meeting, 5, 6 five And, uh, okay, yeah, so, so you know the story better than I do. And the next day, you know, Dr. Luther was mortified. And the next day, he was down in the lobby before anybody, ready to go. And, and from the way I heard it, Titan wasn't. So, um you know, stuff like that can really work against you.
1: Rick was almost like, like, it's not my fault I got lost. I'm in a foreign country. How am I supposed to get around? I'm like, dude, it's your, you know, 48th tour here. You know how to get around and you know how important it is to be here on time for the bus. And he's like, yeah, but you don't understand. I was, I was late and and the sky is falling and the the, the McDonald's is open and the traffic light was, you know, and it's all these different things. And I know he had that in, in WWE from a lot of different people, a lot of, a lot of um, of his contemporaries were not big fans of Rick because of that kind of "woe is me" type of attitude in in a lot of uh, situations.
3: The main thing I always found, because I, I definitely screwed up a lot <laughs> in the wrestling business and, and outside of it, and uh, it's you got to do what Dr. Luther did, man. You, you got to, yeah, I screwed up. I apologize. I'm gonna make it good, and then do everything you can to make it good. And it's, that's more important in wrestling than in anything else especially because it's such a hierarchical system and, and you know, there, there are so many different levels of, of people with influence. And if you're, if you're dealing, if you're on the lower end of the totem pole or even the middle of the totem pole and you're dealing with guys who have more stroke than you, then you really got to make it good when you screw up and not make excuses.
1: I know that um, Brett and he were trying to think of other angles and other gimmicks. And one of the gimmicks that Rick had that he wanted to do, if you remember, remember the cartoon Johnny Bravo, that was oh, yeah, I pretty that. popular at the time. He wanted to do a Johnny Bravo gimmick and kind of, and there was a lot of catchphrases like, uh, you know, I'm a one man army and uh, yeah, whatever. And that sort of stuff. He was really kind of pitching the Johnny Bravo character. Um, and Brett had an idea. I'm I'm paraphrasing here, but there was uh, he wanted to do some kind of a, a masked character based around a manta ray, maybe even call a manta ray or something like that because uh, I think, think Brett figured he would be better off under a mask. So Brett was pulling for him on that standpoint, and Rick was pulling from a, from a Johnny Bravo standpoint. And I just remember this. Uh, I think Rick was getting frust- frustrated and, and, and flustered that he couldn't actually talk to Vince. So he got Vince's number and called Vince at home. And he said, hey, Vince, this is Rick Bogner. And, and Vince said, hello, Rick Bogner. Please don't ever call this number again. And then uh, hung up on him. I guess that was, I guess the, all, all the signs that you need to hear that uh, maybe the future for him wasn't very bright in WWE. Uh,
3: yeah, that that would pretty much be the end of any WWE aspirations for, for anybody, man. That 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 sounds like making the wrong move on an epic level, unfortunately. Don, did you have you
1: had you had any talks or any had you have you seen Titan at all since '94?
2: You know what, I just say as, as one of my clothes but like. The last time I saw Rick was at Bad News Funeral, which was obviously a hard day for both of us. But, man, he looked good and he looked positive. And, uh,
3: and, and i that's my lasting memory. I'm kind of glad that that's what it did. Go ahead, Paul. As far as I'm concerned, I mean, it was it was a lot longer uh, since the last time I saw Rick, I think. Uh, I hadn't spoken with him in over 20 years. But, you know, I, I always think of the guy that, you know, right after he won the world title, again, he had a very expectation to to believe that he was going to have a huge head about it. And um, we were discussing you know, our, our respective careers, and I was a very, very long time in in, in getting anywhere. So uh, I said, what are you doing now? And he said, oh, I'm doing this and this. I just won the world title and blah, blah, blah. And I said, how old are you? And he said, 22. I said, man, I'm 24. I haven't done anything yet. And he stopped me right there. He said, dude, don't get down on yourself. He said, "You know, everybody succeeds at different rates. You can still make it. Don't think that just because you're not going to the rate that I'm going, but you're not going to make it, which I always thought was really, really cool. That that always stuck in my head when I think about Rick.
1: As, as we wind down here, I think that um, the last time I saw him was just, uh, I think probably about two or three years ago in Calgary, we had a Fozzie show and he actually tracked me down because he wanted to come say hi. So we went and had, had lunch together. And dude, he, you know, we talk about him being 6'6", 280. When I saw him, he was probably 6'6", I don't know, 210, 220, super lean, look great, super friendly, still funny, not bitter, positive. He had become a a motivational speaker and, and a life coach. He wrote a book about that. And he was in a really good place. And it's really, really cool. I'm glad I got to see him there to know that he wasn't one of those guys that was down and out in Beverly Hills. And I should have been a contender type thing. I think he had come to terms with the fact that he had a pretty great career. And whether it did more than he ever expected or less than he ever expected, I think he was super happy with it and very uh, excited about where he was uh, in his life. And uh, I'm glad I'm glad that I got to see him to, to kind of know that you know, he wasn't one of those guys that ends up uh, on on the downswing. Uh, he was very much on the opposite of that. So it's a good kind of lasting memory to have of him.
3: Yeah, I'm definitely going to miss the guy. Even though you know we didn't talk a lot after I left Calgary, I, I, had, I had a lot of good times with him in Calgary and Winnipeg, and and really, you know, I can't think of a negative interaction. He was always extremely cool with me, and and I was I was nothing in the business. He had no reason to be cool with me, and, and he always was.
1: I got two last stories before we go because I just want to get these out here. I don't know when the next time I'll, I'll tell these stories. So, Titan and I used to work out quite a bit in Calgary. I'd drive downtown and we'd go work out. Do you remember Grant Reynolds, Paul?
3: Yes, yeah, big, big strong man, dude. That guy was uh, was frighteningly strong.
1: Yeah, he was the big power lifter in town. The super nice guy. He's also since passed away. Um, and he, uh, we would go train at his gym. And Rick gave me it was a niacin, I think it was called, which is like supposed to. Get your blood pumping fast. Uh, is that, is that, yeah, yeah, is that niacin? And I remember he gave me one and I was walking downtown. It was drizzling and my hair, my head started burning. And I thought that we were getting hit with acid rain. Like I couldn't, I was like, dude, like this is acid rain. Like my head is burning. And he's like, what are you talking about? So my head is burning, literally burning. Like it's acid rain. Get inside. It's acid rain. Turns out that it's just a niacin. <laughs> <laughs> makes the blood capillaries.
3: We did some gum stuff in the name of training back then, man. That was, that was good. I remember guys taking and to increase blood flow and get better pumps. And all it did was make you itch and burn like crazy. That's
1: exactly what happened. I was like, dude, what did you give me? Is this PCP? Is it acid rain? <laughs> and then the last story I'll tell is, is we were in Japan and it, um, you know, there's not much to do when you have days off. And we were always in these small little ranch towns, farm towns. And we found a karaoke bar. And they didn't serve alcohol, but we found this drink called Chuhai, which they served in the in the uh, uh, convenience stores there. And it's kind of like it's like a Korean wine cooler. It's, it's sake flavored sake, but it's cold. It comes in cans. So we bought like 15 cans of Chuhai. Me and Lenny and Rick, and then we went to the karaoke uh, place. Now the karaoke place had like 15 pages of Japanese songs. And one page of American songs, and on that list was uh, "What a Wonderful World" by uh, by uh, whatever his name is, Louis Armstrong. Louis Armstrong. And "Working for the Weekend" by Loverboy. And we just sang those in loops, and Rick would do the imitation of of Louis Armstrong, and then go straight into a flawless Mike Reno imitation. Probably the only guy in the world that could do a Mike Reno from Loverboy and a Louis Armstrong whilst a drunk on Chu high. There you go.
3: Dude, I remember hearing his Louis Armstrong, too. I forget where he, he did it for me, but uh, he, that was bang on as well. He was great. Like, I could have had a whole second career as an impressionist.
1: Anyways, uh, tribute to, to, to Rick Titan, and Rick Bogner, and uh, glad that we had some great experiences with him. And as always, sad that I didn't talk too much over the last few years, but... Uh, Whatever happened, he left a a, a a cool impression on a lot of people, and uh, I'll miss knowing that he that he's around.
3: Yeah, likewise, man. It's uh, it, it's definitely a loss for uh, for out of our group of wrestling guys in, in Calgary. It, it, he's definitely going to be one of the guys who's more missed now that he's gone.
1: Don, any uh, words of wisdom to leave us off here?
3: You know what? Like one thing I'll always remember about
2: Rick. It's like it wasn't the size, it wasn't the wrestling. It was just what a nice guy. He and every time. So he was smiling. He made me feel good. that's what I'm going to remember about Rick.
1: All right, guys. Well, stay safe, guys. And uh, and hopefully next time we'll get a chance to talk about uh, Don being an asshole again rather than somebody passing.
3: Well, that's always an open-ended topic. You can bring that up anytime. He's so. totally not paying attention. I love that.
1: <laughs> Have you even been paying attention at all, Don? <laughs> of course not. <laughs> He's not even paying attention now. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, guys. Thanks a lot, man. We'll talk to you soon.
3: All right. Take care,
1: bro. All right. Thanks to Don Callis and Paul Lazyby for sharing all their great stories about Rick Bogner. Rest in peace, Rick. Uh, we will always uh, remember how great of a guy you are. And like I said, even though I lost touch, I'm glad I got to see you a, a couple years ago in Calgary and uh, lots of great times and memories uh, about you. So um, hopefully uh, this uh, this uh, helps people who knew Rick and, and gives people who didn't know him a little bit of a insight as to what he was like. So uh, coming up on Friday, Leonard Skinner drummer, original drummer, Artemis Pyle. He survived three crashes in his life, including the famous uh, crash that took the lives of his friends and bandmates, uh, Ronnie Van Zandt uh, and the other two. Um, uh, Leonard Skinner, terrible crash, October twentieth, 1977. He's talking all about that, the in-depth description of the Leonard Skinner plane crash. Uh, Artemis was on it. He survived it barely. He almost died a couple times after the crash as well. So it's just a riveting story. Lots of memories about that time, about the heyday of Leonard Skinner. It's going to be a good one. So we'll see you then. And uh, in the meantime, in the between time, stay hard. Stay hungry. Peace, love, and hugs. And a big, yeah, boy. God bless you, big titan.